Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Understanding how other people see us is an interpersonal superpower. And it isn't about insecurity, it's about connection. It's about developing rapport. It's about building relationships. And it's just having an awareness bigger than me. Hold on to your hats, people, because have I got someone for you. Craig Harper is one of Australia's leading presenters, writers and educators in the areas of so many spaces, health, high performance, resilience, self-management, leadership, corporate change, communication, personal transformation and more broadly, human behaviour. He is one fascinating person. He's worked as an exercise scientist, corporate speaker, business consultant, high performance coach, university lecturer, AFL conditioning coach, radio host, TV presenter, newspaper columnist, and now a successful business owner. He hosts a high-rating daily podcast called The You Project and is the author of seven books. He's currently completing a PhD in neuropsychology, so this is going to be one interesting conversation. I know it. I feel it. Hang on to your hats. Can't wait to see where this takes us. Craig, it is fabulous to have you on the other side of the mic, you podcast rock star you, so welcome to the show. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I feel privileged. Oh, no, it's too fun. I feel privileged. So uh, there we go. We'll get that little, uh, you know, mutual appreciation out of the way. But let's kick in because you have a lot to say about a lot of topics and I cannot wait to see where this goes. If there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? I'd like us to talk more about and think more about thinking, the way we think and why we think the way we do and how Michelle thinks, how Craig thinks and my awareness about my own thinking and why, why is that the way it is? How does Michelle think in this moment? How come we're in the same conversation right now, but we're not in the same experience? What is that about? You know, is the way that I think about my genetics, is it about my programming, conditioning, education? Do we live in echo chambers? What is confirmation bias? All that stuff that arises from the mind, you know? So why is this a topic that you're so passionate about? What's the backstory here, Craig? So the backstory is, so I started working in gyms. Well, firstly, I was a morbidly obese kid, right? We probably don't need to know that, but maybe it gives it some context. So I was 95 kilos when I was 14. My name at school was Jumbo, fattest kid, picked last for every sporting team, all that kind of stuff, right? You know, when you're that, when that's your physical reality and your social reality and your practical reality, you think a certain way and you see yourself a certain way and and you navigate the world a certain way and you process information and experiences and relationships in a certain way. And all of that's mind stuff. All of that's thinking stuff. And then by the time I was 14 or 15, you kind of see yourself in a certain way, which was not actually a true representation of who I could be or how I could be or my potential or my genetics. Or And I had an experience, I think quite often, you know, in the, the human kind of 
journey, we have moments in time where something profound, it might not be profound to other people, but to us as individuals, it's profound, happens. So I call it an emotional or a psychological tipping point. Malcolm Gladwell wrote The Tipping Point, which is a great book. And for me, that was the year eight swimming sports where I was just through no fault of anyone's but me. Uh, I was humiliated and, and, you know, I didn't, like I just had this moment in time standing on the swimming blocks, like probably a thousand people at the carnival, parents, teachers, kids, and I hated how I looked and felt. And and I kind of got out of the pool uh, at the end of that and I thought, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to stand up there and look like that or feel like that. And so for me, that was a turning point. And I subsequently lost about 30 kilos in the next four months. And I really reinvented myself. But there was enough emotional and psychological leverage. Anyway, so I changed my body, which was good. I changed food and exercise and all that. And I reinvented myself to an extent on a physical level. Well, that was cool. What was the unexpected kind of gift was all of a sudden I thought differently. And I thought, oh, wow, maybe... I'm not useless. Maybe I could be athletic. Maybe somebody could find me attractive because I just thought I was the most hideous thing on earth, right? Maybe. And and so it's in the doing of these things, doing of hard stuff sometimes that we almost reprogram the way that we think and the way that we see ourselves and the way that we process our world. And And then I started working in the fitness industry as a young gym instructor before I went to university and I realized that getting in shape physically was really a byproduct of getting in shape mentally and emotionally, you know, and that that the mind essentially drives the body and also vice versa in some ways. But, you know, when I was a fat kid, I didn't accidentally have three cakes. I chose that. You know, I didn't accidentally not exercise. I made that decision. I didn't accidentally drink a milkshake every night after school or whatever. And it's not about self-loathing or beating me up. It's just about honesty and self-awareness and you know, I realized early days as a gym instructor that I could teach people about anatomy and physiology and food and exercise and lifestyle and biomechanics and micros and macros. I could give them all the kind of the science and teach them how to lift or run or squat or whatever the thing was. But I realized that all of that stuff was almost redundant if they couldn't manage their mind. You know, I started with bodies, but I ended up working with the people who inhabited the bodies. So bodies are fascinating, but people are way more fascinating. Listening to your story and how you've changed that mindset, which I'm a big believer on, and I'm an ex-athlete as well. So mindset is such a significant part of that process. You know, you learn that as a, as a top athlete. But you talk a lot about being the author of your own story, which is something that really resonates with me. Tell me more about why you think that, you know, people need to take action more and be the author of their own story and maybe stop blaming others or external things that uh, occur to them. So I think there's stuff that we can control and stuff that we can't. So I kind of talk about this two-world model. You know, you and I live in two worlds, external, physical, three-dimensional world, and um, an internal, non-physical world you know so the, the external world situation circumstance environment job people government weather <laughs> stuff but most of what happens in our life in terms of the external like covid uh, the bloke in the car at the lights you know the whatever most of stuff that happens around us and to us is not in our control 
we're just navigating it. Then there's the internal stuff of thoughts and feelings and ideas and decisions and, you know, faith and belief and self-doubt and self-love and self-loathing and self-awareness and goals and dreams and all of that internal stuff. And so we're constantly navigating these two worlds. I'm constantly managing my internal world, but I'm navigating my external world where life happens. And so our life is what it is and we are who we are, but you know, we find ourselves in the middle of situations quite often that we didn't choose or want. And then in the middle of that situation that you didn't choose or want, even though it might not be where you want to be or how you want to be, you still have a choice then. You go, well, I didn't want this to happen. This sucks. But nonetheless, here I am. What will I do now? How will I respond now? What decision will I make now? Everybody's had tragedy to an extent. Everybody's had trauma to an extent. You know, my favorite high performer in the world is my mum. She's 84. She's had cancer three times. She's been at death's door twice. She's had a heart attack. She crashed her car three months and totaled it and was knocked out and broke five or six ribs and was unconscious and taken to an ambulance and spent nights in hospital and all that kind of stuff. And in the middle of that, my mum does not ever complain. Like her first thing when she woke up and when I, I drove two hours to see her where she lives and she was mad at me because I interrupted my very busy, important life to go and see her, right? And so, you know, the reality is that it's almost impossible to manage life in inverted commas, but it is possible to manage ourselves in the middle of that life. So when we compare life situation to life experience, that's when we kind of start to step into self-awareness. So okay, explain that more. Sorry. So explain the difference between those two. That's interesting. Okay. So you and I both know people who live in a life situation, circumstance, environment, income, house, car, stuff. Like from the outside looking in, their life is Hollywood, right? But the inside out experience might be very different. So there is a relationship between external and internal world, and we know that up to a point money matters, but we also know beyond the point it doesn't seem to correlate with happiness. Of course, we need shelter and safety and protection and food and all the fundamentals. But you and I probably, I definitely know, I'm sure you do, people who from the outside looking in, their life is amazing. You would typically call them very successful and those people, some of them are also medicated for sleeplessness and anxiety and depression. And while they are financially or commercially wealthy, they may also be emotionally, socially, spiritually, mentally bankrupt. For me, I'm fascinated with the internal world way more than the stuff that we can see. You know, making money is great. Building a brand and business, great. Having a ripped jacked body and muscles and veins and terrific if that's what you're into having a million followers well done razzle dazzle all good but none of that necessarily equals joy none of that necessarily equals the absence of anxiety or sleeplessness or overthinking or sadness or depression or desperation and so that's much more without trying to get too deep or weird but what some people would call a spiritual journey you know, for me, I'm fascinated with how happiness happens, how joy, how sadness. And yeah, there's biochemical component to that. There's physiological component. There's a, a social component. It's a multidimensional thing. It's not just about one thing. But when we think about 
thinking, we're also talking, we're talking about beliefs, we're talking about ideas, we're talking about values, like these are all products of the mind. Identity, where does my identity come from? Now think about this, think about thinking, think, think about if my identity is intertwined with my body or my brand or my money or... As is so often the case, right? I'm always going to be insecure because that stuff can disappear. So I'm getting this external outside in validation of who I am. And also think about this, Michelle, when my identity is intertwined with certain beliefs, then I pretty much become unteachable unless you agree with me about that belief. Yeah, when we saw that hugely through COVID, right? The vaccinated, unvaxxed, you know, the whole dilemma with that, with families and friends. It's not about, for me, I'm not interested in the religious this or the vaccine. I'm interested in the thinking behind it. If you ask most people, like, do you think you're pretty open-minded? Most people go, yes. And I get that. And most people think they're pretty objective, but (laughs) it's almost impossible to be objective or open-minded about many things anyway. And the reason is, the reason is that since you and I could think and the listeners could think or process anything until now, this point in time, listening to you and I chat, they've been programmed, we've been programmed. And the way that you think and the way that you process the world around you, the way that you tell yourself stories, the way that you label something a problem or an opportunity or an interesting experience or whatever, all of that is a byproduct of thinking. And your thinking is a byproduct of pretty much your upbringing. About 20, 30% maybe is genetic, about 70 or 80% of how you see the world and yourself in the world is a byproduct of programming that you didn't choose. You didn't choose your programming. You didn't choose your family, friends, influences. But you and I have been programmed, influenced, poked and prodded by media, social media, friends, families, experiences, interactions, school, work, you know, the scouts, the girl guides, whatever your music, whatever it was, whatever that inbound stimulus was to an extent that shaped you. The beginning of objectivity and open-mindedness and self-awareness is to recognize that programming, is to recognize that Michelle and Craig look at the world through the Michelle and Craig windows. So would you say, oh, Craig, are you objective? I'd say I'd love to be, but I'm not. I'm maybe more objective and open-minded than I used to be because I'm aware of my bias. I'm aware of my beliefs. See, if you have existing beliefs, values, ideas, standards, rules, rituals, which we all do, then that is the window through which you process everything. So the Craig filter or the Michelle filter is in between the stimulus and the story. Does this make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. But I guess I'm trying to bring it back as well for someone listening or, you know, how do you apply this stuff? So one, the point there is around identifying that, you know, you have a bias to your point and that you're maybe not objective and thinking about your thoughts. And one of the things I was going to ask earlier was, I think I think about my thoughts way too much. <laughs> you know, I'm a big thinker. My brain's always bloody going. You know, to your point about not being out of sleep, often that's because I'm overthinking stuff. Not to the point that I'm anxious. I've had enough shit happen to me in my life that I have good perspective, I think, about, you know, what's truly important and what's not. But I do think about things a lot. You know, the whole couple of things going on at the moment, obviously the referendum, I've had a lot to do with Tasmania, you know, all the logging and issues going on in Tassie with Bob Brown and stuff. So two big issues 
that I've read a lot about and I see kind of both sides. And so for me to get to a decision that I feel comfortable with, with all that information, there's a lot of thinking that goes on. So my question to you is, how do you take all that info and like, what do you do with it? Like, how do you get to some sort of resolution or that you're kind of better in life? Because you want people to think about their thinking more. Yeah. So firstly, there's, so you were talking about thinking about certain things, analyzing certain things and thinking about the vote, thinking about Bob Brown, et cetera. The metacognitive part of that is you now, which is metacognition is thinking about thinking. That's literally what that means. The metacognitive part of that is now you starting to think about why do I think that way? And some people will go, oh, my God, this is too hard. I'm zoning out. And I, I understand that. <laughs> I love it. I'm loving it. <laughs> Keep going. But, but the problem with this is our thinking, understanding our thinking is a superpower. Because when something happens and I'm like, oh, that's a problem, that's a catastrophe, da 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 then, then I realise, no, that's just my story because the thing that happened actually has no meaning. It doesn't mean anything until there's a human there to interpret it. This thing happened, this is what it means. But then Michelle's on the other side going, nope, this is what it means. And for you, it's an opportunity and it really is an opportunity and for me, it really is a problem right? Because I believe it's a problem. Now, here's something amazing about thinking, Michelle, and everyone else. If you believe something's a problem, right? That's a cognitive thing. You believe. So, in your mind, you think something's a problem that is not actually a problem. So, let's say, for example, Michelle thought right now that she was in danger, but she wasn't in danger. There was no threat there was no risk. No one was coming through the door with a bloody weapon. Like, it's all good. She's good. But but on the cognitive side, so she thinks that she's in danger, well, then the emotional response would be fear, would be perhaps terror, would be perhaps, uh, you know, anxiety, blah, blah, blah. And then so the cognitive, the mind is the thought, I'm in trouble, I'm in danger, the emotional is the fear and so on. And then the physiological is elevated heart rate and blood pressure and sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, an endocrine system, hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine. And then all of a sudden, just with a thought, now Michelle, now you are in a stress state. Now that's all a byproduct of your mind. That's all a byproduct of your thinking. It's not a byproduct of the situation because the situation is you are safe. But if you're safe, but you think you're not, there'll be a negative consequence. And so the mind, the emotional system, and the physiology, the body, are intertwined all the time. They don't operate in isolation. They operate synergistically all of the time. Everything affects everything. If, for example, this is how powerful the mind is. Let's say, do you love animals or hate animals or in between? No, I love animals. Okay. Have you got a dog? No, I travel too much. My husband will not give in. I've been trying for years to get animals. <laughs> if, if you had a dog what kind of dog would you love to have in this hypothetical blue healer okay so you had a blue healer you come home you blue healer you've had a shit day you love your blue healer you, your blue healer loves you you walk in the door and uh he or she jumps all over you you lay on the floor there's a whole love fest going on there's dribble there's oxytocin it's fucking amazing right and that's because you love dogs you love dogs now i I also love dogs, right? But let's say for the hypothetical, I hate dogs. I come home, same thing happens. And now 
I'm producing all of this negative shit because this messy, stinky, slobbery dog is jumping all over me. I'm having a bad experience. You're having a great experience down to a cellular level. Now, what is that about? Is it about the activity? Is it about the dog? Is it about the location? No, it's totally about the experience that I create as a byproduct of how I think and feel around dogs. And so all, all I'm trying to do is to open the door on getting people to think about, oh, there is no reality. There's my reality. There's Michelle's reality. And so, yes, there are objective realities in that sense, in that gravity's real. You know, the sky's real. The earth is real. There are all of these things that we know. But then beyond that, it's trying to understand one, our own reality and how that happens. And also another really interesting concept in psychology called theory of mind, which is me understanding Michelle's thinking. And my ability to be able to understand your reality will influence largely how good I am or bad I am as a communicator, connector, leader, coach, problem solver, podcaster, guest. It kind of probably leads into a question I had for you as well. And as you know, you do two podcasts, they're um, pretty big, pretty big podcasts. You've been around for a while. The You Project, you've interviewed like 1,280 people, which is phenomenal. And I know how much work this is. So congrats on that. And then the Life Podcast, you really do short, sharp kind of grabs on little pieces of information. One recently you did was around that difference, I guess, about what people think about you versus caring about what others think about you, which is a really interesting notion. So I wanted to pick up on that, on this whole kind of point about, and what you just said then about knowing how others feel and being that, you know, higher cognitive kind of level. So talk to me about the difference of, you know, some people say, I, I couldn't give a shit what someone thinks about me and your point is actually well you should and why is that yeah so there's a difference between being insecure and needy and fearful about whether or not michelle likes me and and then going oh well i don't care if michelle likes me stuff michelle i'm just going to be me and whatever and that is understandable but it doesn't work like it might work in temporarily protecting your ego or yourself it might but over the long term, if we're going to have healthy relationships with other people, we need to, we don't need to, but it's advantageous to have some insight into how people experience us. So my PhD is literally on a thing called meta-perception, more specifically meta-accuracy. And to put it in layman's terms, it just means my ability to understand the Craig experience for other people and why that matters. And so I know that because we are all different, because everyone processes things differently, there will be people who listen to this conversation who go, this is bullshit, I'm out. There will be people who go, this is fucking fascinating. Never thought, wow, like, hmm. Then there'll be others who go, maybe this is a bit confusing, can you tone it down? Or, And, and then, I don't know. There'll be, But there'll be a range of responses because it's not about Michelle and Craig or the content. It's about how people interpret Craig and Michelle and the content. So when I stand in front of an audience, like I did the other day of 400 people on the Gold Coast, and I've got to talk for an hour and a half to a room, and I go, all right, well, this and this is how I think. I go, there's 400 people, there's 400 personalities, 400 backgrounds, 400 sets of expectations, 400 different minds with different experiences, beliefs, values, ideas, ideologies, philosophies, faith. So I'm talking to a huge range of diversity. 
I'm a very diverse group. I'm saying one message, but I'm saying one message, hopefully in a way which resonates with as many people as possible. So as somebody who coaches, communicates for a living, speaks for a living, it's in my interest to understand how people perceive and process me. And especially in a one-on-one, if I'm sitting with somebody one-on-one in a chat, and I have no idea of their version of right now, their version of this moment that we are in, then at the very best, I'm just guessing. But if I'm aware that this person is a bit insecure in this moment or a bit fearful or intimidated or joyful or, you know, I'm saying stuff and I can see that it's landing, I can see that it's resonating, then that's great. It kind of lights my path as where to go or where not to go conversationally. And so understanding how other people see us is an interpersonal superpower. And it isn't about insecurity. It's about connection. It's about developing rapport. It's about building relationships. If I understand how Michelle thinks, if I understand how Michelle sees me at least a little bit, then I drastically increase my chances of building a healthy relationship, personal or professional, solving problems together, working side by side, uh, resolving conflict, creating stuff, building business, having fun, looking forward to working together. And it's just having an awareness bigger than me, which really matters. And so that's, yeah, metacognition is simply your ability to understand how others perceive you. So is it a self-awareness or it's more than that? It's actually called self-other awareness or external self-awareness, which is outside looking in. It's not about you understanding you. It's about me understanding how you see me. I'll tell you something I developed. You'll find this interesting. So I developed a thing called the YES40, which is a scale to measure this. So YES stands for the You Experience Scale, YES, You Experience Scale 40. And there's 40 criteria and there are four domains or four separate areas, behavioral, emotional, cognitive, social. So let's say you and I know each other. Let's say we've known each other for a couple of years, which we haven't. Let's say Fergus that you and I both know. So you know Ferg really well, right? Shout out to Ferg. So you and Ferg do this, you go through this process and I give you each a questionnaire and there's 40 things and you rate yourself one to seven on a Leichhardt scale. And it might be something like, I'm a really empathetic person. One, not totally disagree. Seven, strongly agree. Behavioral, it might be, I am always punctual, whatever. So you go, yep, seven, I'm super fucking punctual, right? So you rate yourself on these 40 things on a one to seven scale. And then Fergus would rate you based on how he sees you. And then the third column, there's a third column, that is Michelle rates how she thinks she is perceived by Fergus. So column one, you assessing you. Column two, him assessing you on those 40 criteria. Column three, you guessing or or having an awareness or a, a prediction around how you think he experiences you. And then what we do is we get column two, how he sees you, and column three, how you think he sees you, and we compare them. And that gives us an insight into your ability to understand how you're perceived by others. And so it's somewhat quantifying this cognitive construct or, or ability. So for people understanding that in the world of social media and the challenges we have and, you know, people just writing shit online, you know, because they can hide behind, you know, the keyboard warriors and stuff and where it does impact your feeling or, you know, caring about 
what others think or whatever. And there's that self-preservation element. How do you suggest people deal with this? Because there are circumstances in life where I can't have an impact or an input or an understanding of how you perceive me. So is it self-preservation where you kind of go, well, you know what? I don't have an impact. I don't know you well enough to know. I don't really care. I'm never going to see you again. Like who gives a shit? And actually to protect myself and to not go into that spiral of worrying about this person thinks I'm a dickhead or whatever. Like how, how do you navigate that? Protect yourself from what is my question to you? Yeah, good question. Um Maybe that's where it is. It gets deep about, you know, your perception of yourself and if it does go into ego and, yeah, I don't know. See, I, I think, and th- this is just my philosophy. This is, this is not an instruction or advice. My philosophy is, like, I have tens of thousands of listeners a day to my show, right? I know that people won't like me. I know that people will like me. I know that people will engage. I know that people will disengage, Right. So my job is not to keep everyone happy. My job is to live in alignment with my values and beliefs and what I believe is my purpose and mission that I get to choose. I love human beings. I don't want to hurt one person. I love people. I also want to be direct and honest because I'm inherently a coach and a teacher. I actually want to help people. I actually want to help people to help themselves. I'm not interested in making people feel great for three minutes with pseudo-psychology fluffy bullshit. I'm interested in why the fuck have you been going around in circles for five years and coming up with the same bullshit and blaming other people? And I'm interested in that, right? Uh, Which is not to say that some people don't have legitimate gripes or reasons against others. Of course, I'm not saying that. But I think that the practical reality of being human is that there will be people who like you and don't like you. There will be people who criticize you and i know that the bigger platform you you have the bigger platform i have the more that's going to happen because it's a statistical inevitability you know i did a podcast the other day with a guy doesn't matter who but it was great we got overwhelmingly good feedback we probably had a hundred responses all positive ranging from i really enjoyed that to how can i get in contact with him that was amazing and then the other day melissa said to me oh someone you know, sent an email, uh, Melissa runs my life, and they were triggered and they want to talk to you. And basically, I created a problem for them. And here's the thing. Now, I'm not being disrespectful, but, you know, when 100 people are not offended and one person's offended, you need to realize that maybe that's got something to do with you and that you and I will always say something or do something because you have a platform and I have a platform that someone won't like. And if I spent my life trying to keep everyone happy and everyone emotionally safe, and it's just not my job. It's not my job to keep the world happy or safe. It's my job to, I believe, teach and inspire and coach and educate. And I try to do it with as much sensitivity and awareness and empathy and kindness as I can. But, you know, you are going to get hurt. People are not going to like you, Michelle. People are not going to like me. People are going to be critical. It just happens. And what matters then is how you and I respond, how we deal with it. I told you before we went live, right, what emails I get. I won't use the word that I use, but I get called things, right? I got an email a while ago from a bloke who said, I want to put you in an airplane, fly you over an active volcano and drop you in it, right? 
like he wants to kill me. I'm like, well, that that's what he said. And I'm like, okay, well, that's um, he's really thought that through and that's pretty creative and he definitely doesn't like me. And I'm like, and my response is more curiosity than anything. And it's like, well, some people like listening to me, which I still find fascinating because I don't think I'm that interesting. But if you don't, that's cool. Like, don't listen. If you don't like me, also cool. Don't pay attention to me. You know, go find someone you like. But if we come back, because it's that's a fascinating point, come back to your, you know, the work that you do around that, my perception of the impact that I make on others or how others feel about me. So is your outcome of like that example that you just gave to find, okay, I'm curious about it, that's interesting, or does it make you think, what is it that I did or said that actually instigated that? reaction in someone like do you do that sort of self-awareness kind of analysis or do you just go nah because I've had 100 good responses and one bad like that's not my issue like how do you process that of course if I'm being completely honest which I try to be of course I don't like that because I've got an ego and I'm fearful and I've got issues and I'm a human being and I want people to like me and (laughs) I'm an only child please love me I'm wildly insecure you know all of that of course But I know that it's going to happen, you know. And so the only way for me to reduce that is not to do my job. But I think about it. But does anyone ever criticize me and make a good point? 100%. There are some people who have criticized me and I've thought about it. Like when I first started my podcast, because I have a background in radio. And so I was always reasonably comfortable just doing what I'm doing now. But a few people wrote to me and went, Stop talking over the guests. And they were right. And some of them said some not very flattering things as well. And I listened to a few and it's like I did. I interrupted. I talked over people. I fucked up. Like literally the problem was me. And so I think one of the biggest challenges, period, for me anyway, and for most people that I know is going, oh, yeah, I was the problem there. And, you know, you probably didn't have to call me all those names, but the point is valid and I'm taking it on board and I'm addressing it. And thank you, because I will continue to get things wrong. It's that I'm good with. When it's constructive, I'm good. But when it's somebody, it's like, you made me feel this, somebody that I've never met and will probably never meet, and they're telling me that I made them. It's like, well, somehow I'm in charge of your emotions. I don't know how that works, right? Your emotional response isn't my responsibility, Having said that, it's not that I don't care, but I literally have sometimes 20,000 people who listen to, you know, the show on a day or or my shows on a day. And I'm like, I just, I can't, that is just impossible because there are too many variables. But I will give you one quick story. And that is when I started teaching students in essentially what are Vic Fit courses or certificate three and four and fitness courses, one of the bits of feedback that I used to get quite often early days when I was 30-ish and bodybuilder and buffed and muscles on my eyelids and wildly insecure and idiot and all of that, is that people would say, generally the feedback was good, there would be, you know, feedback forms, but I consistently got this, you know, Craig, Craig's a bit intimidating. And uh, the lady who ran the courses that I spoke, that I lectured in, she's like, uh, you know, like I think some of them are a bit scared of you. And like, it was never my intention for that, right? I wanted them to think I was great and laugh and funny and clever and, but not, not intimidating. And, but I probably every hundred 
feedback forms got 10 saying that. I'm like, well, that is significant. That's not one. That's significant. And so I had to do a deep dive and I actually sat down with that lady. Her name's Tara. We're still friends and said, am I intimidating? And she went, well, not to me, but I know you, but you can be. I go, cool. What do I do? That's intimidating. And she said, get comfortable. Here's the list. And I'm like, oh, all right. But that's good, though. That's part of that awareness. But, Michelle, that's part of growth is going, yeah, of course I fuck up. Of course I get things wrong. And you might talk to me in two years and I will have changed my mind about stuff because, like, I get stuff wrong constantly. And we're always learning, you know, as a human. That's the whole point of us being here, right, to uh, learn shit every day and hopefully be better and do better. But, Craig, I could talk to you for hours. I feel like we've just got this tiny little slither of, you know, an element of your brain and the way you work on stuff. But it's been fascinating. I hope everyone's been along the journey with us because I really loved it. Thanks so much for being on the show. It's been wonderful. Well, congrats on what you're doing with your podcast. And thank you for uh, having a chat with me. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. (laughs) 